Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Week in Review, a production of 90.3 WRST-FM Oshkosh. I'm Joe Schultz. This week we'll take a look at the economic fallout of the coronavirus pandemic, the future of the UW system, and the state of the Menominee Nation arena. Those stories and more coming up on Week in Review. According to Johns Hopkins University, as of Thursday, the United States has had more than 840,000 confirmed cases of COVID-19 and nearly 50,000 deaths as a result of the virus. On Thursday, Wisconsin surpassed 5,000 confirmed cases of COVID-19 with 257 deaths. As of Thursday, Winnebago County has 43 confirmed cases and one death. According to Unicast, a company using GPS technology to monitor social distancing efforts, Winnebago County has received a C-minus grade for its social distancing efforts. According to a report from Wisconsin Policy Forum, counties in Wisconsin are likely to see tax revenues decline and service demands increase as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. The report says counties are likely to face the greatest financial challenges among Wisconsin's local governments because they rely on sales taxes and are the most likely to see increased demand for services during the economic downturn created by the pandemic. The report says Wisconsin counties have some advantages compared to counties in other states, such as relying on property taxes. The study says Wisconsin's reliance on property taxes protects it from severe drops in sales tax revenue created by an economic downturn. The study adds that county governments can still expect revenue challenges, as 68 of the state's 72 counties collect a 0.5% sales tax, which will see diminished revenues, especially in places with significant tourism. At the Future of the UW System Virtual Town Hall Tuesday, Governor Tony Evers said coronavirus testing across Wisconsin needs to increase significantly in order to safely reopen higher education facilities. Many UW system institutions are feeling the financial strain and are being forced to make hard budgetary decisions. To save roughly $3 million, about 600 UW system employees have been ordered to take unpaid time off for one day each month through June 2021. UW Oshkosh has already announced a plan to furlough some 12-month employees from May 4th to August 31, and to furlough the remaining employees intermittently from May 4th through June 2021. Other UW schools in Milwaukee, Whitewater, Superior, La Crosse, Stevens Point, and River Falls all announced furloughs this week as well. UW-Green Bay history professor John Shelton, who co-hosted the town hall, says there will be more furloughs to come as many institutions were already facing drastic budget cuts before the COVID-19 crisis began. Even after the state reopens, Shelton says UW institutions could see fluctuating enrollments until a vaccine is widely available. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to take a look at some of the economic ramifications brought on by the coronavirus pandemic. Sam Weish was a quarterback, head coach, and broadcaster in the NFL. Last year, he became a heart recipient. And now I know what a miracle feels like. My new heart gave me a new mission in life, and that is to get others to sign up to be organ donors. There are over 130 million people that have already signed up. Be a part of that. Please sign up to be an organ, eye, and tissue donor. Go to organdonor.gov. U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. The coronavirus pandemic has left workers in a state of disarray as steps to slow its spread 
have led to mass layoffs and a spike in unemployment applications in Wisconsin. As schools switch to remote learning, non-essential businesses close, and dine-in services and mass gatherings are banned, unemployment claims in the state continue to mount. According to preliminary statistics from the Department of Workforce Development, there have been over 250,000 unemployment claims filed in Wisconsin since March 15th. For comparison, the department says there were only about 25,000 unemployment claims filed over that same period last year. When the Oshkosh Area School District announced that it was closing beginning on March 16th, Cobison Buses was forced to lay off about 100 workers. Bronson Enley, the terminal manager for Cobison and Oshkosh, says the company laid off bus drivers and bus attendants to stay solvent because it has loans that need to be paid. He says the company is compensating workers for one and a half hours worth of pay for each morning and afternoon route, which is less than they were making before the pandemic. As soon as uh, school opens back up, whether that's this year or next year, all of our current employees will be welcomed or invited back. He added that until then, employees are encouraged to file for unemployment. While companies scramble to save their bottom line, workers have been left with overwhelming uncertainty. UW Oshkosh student Haley Vadnais worked at the Odyssey Movie Theater in Fond du Lac until the theater announced it was closing upon considering guidelines from the CDC. Vadnais says losing her job on top of being unable to continue in-person classes has left her without a consistent routine. She says she isn't too concerned about losing her source of income because she lives with her family, but she's concerned about some of her co-workers. Some of my co-workers are definitely going to be hit hard by this. People who relied on the movie theater for their complete income, I know this is going to be hitting them really hard, especially. Beyond the movie theater, Wisconsin Dells resorts have been forced to close as a result of the pandemic, leaving workers unemployed. One of those workers is Ellie Westet, a high school senior from Laval, Wisconsin, a town 21 miles away from the Wisconsin Dells. Westet had planned to return to her summer job for the Wisconsin Dells Army Ducks, but the need for social distancing to slow the spread of COVID-19 has put a damper on those plans. Without the summer income, she no longer plans to attend college in the fall. I have older parents, and I just, I don't want to spend their money and my money on college when I don't think that the economy is going to be good coming out of this, and I'm not going to be able to work as many hours in a higher-paying job this summer to pay for college. Closer to home, Oshkosh resident Rachel Bays lost her job doing clerical work in a tax office in Menasha due to the pandemic which has left her with a looming sense of financial insecurity. The impact now is just trying to figure out if I'm going to pay for all these necessities. How am I going to pay for rent now? What about my cell phone bill? What about my car payment? Bays hasn't filed for unemployment yet because she's working to find a new job. She says she plans to file for unemployment only if she can't find another job. For those laid off without financial compensation, Forward Service Corporation, a nonprofit with offices in 46 counties in Wisconsin, is looking to support workers through various programs. Brian Covey, the nonprofit's director of operations, says the organization is working with partners across Winnebago County to connect them to resources through a variety of programs. One of the programs offered is Wisconsin Works, which provides cash assistance payments to adults with children under 18. Another is emergency assistance, which helps adults with children keep the lights on and a roof over their heads through eviction and utility notices. We're trying to provide support to people who are 
looking at their hours getting cut down or they've lost a job because of being laid off. Covey says the organization plans to continue helping workers get back on their feet throughout the pandemic. The coronavirus pandemic has crippled the American economy, causing millions to lose jobs, forcing businesses to face potential closure, and spurring a debate about when and how to restart the economy. According to a UW Oshkosh survey of 2,550 businesses, 35% of businesses in Wisconsin say that if conditions don't improve, in the next three months they will be forced to close while 22% say it's impossible to know how long they'll remain viable. In Winnebago County, the survey found that 28% of businesses believe they will have to close in three months if conditions remain the same. John Casper, president of the Oshkosh Chamber of Commerce, says local businesses are struggling as many are closed due to Wisconsin's safer-at-home order. He says small business owners have been forced to sacrifice a lot and have put their livelihoods on hold as a result. Even though we're all in the same storm, we're all in different boats. Mm-hmm. And, you know, business people are, you know, kind of have a, a double whammy here from the standpoint of, you know, they're doing everything they can to keep themselves healthy, along with employees and family and friends and things. Mm-hmm. But they have this whole issue of keeping their business healthy. Jason White, CEO of the Greater Oshkosh Economic Development Corporation, says most businesses in the area are dealing with a heightened sense of uncertainty right now. Many companies and many industries are feeling a real pinch. And even the companies that are doing well, those companies, in many cases, they might be busy, but they might have to wait for 90, 120, 150 days to get paid just because there's uncertainty on the other side by some of their customers. Last weekend, hundreds of people frustrated by the economic downturn lined the streets in Brookfield, Wisconsin to protest Governor Tony Evers extending Wisconsin's safer-at-home order to May 26th, and hundreds planned to protest the order at the state capitol in Madison on Friday. Similar protests in Michigan, Ohio, and Kentucky were connected to far-right groups, according to the Guardian newspaper. On Monday, Governor Evers rolled out the Badger Bounce Back Plan, which aims to reopen the economy in phases and is informed by President Trump's guidelines for reopening the country. In a press release, Evers said Wisconsin does not meet the criteria established by the White House to begin reopening, and the Badger Bounce Back Plan takes necessary measures to get Wisconsin there. Evers says the plan aims to bring COVID-19 cases and deaths to a low level and increase capacity in the healthcare system to ensure a phased reopening of businesses, as well as increase access to testing and expand lab capacity. Under the plan, Evers says everyone who needs a test should get a test, and that the state is setting a goal of 85,000 tests per week averaging about 12,000 tests per day. Wisconsin would also expand contact tracing to more aggressively track the virus's spread. One day after the plan was announced, Republicans in the state legislature asked the state's Supreme Court to block the extension of Safer at Home. Casper, the Oshkosh Chamber president, says the chamber supports reopening the economy before the second Safer at Home order expires. He says businesses can take enough protective measures to make everyone feel safe. Everybody cares for human lives, and you know from that standpoint, where there's commonality. But businesses have to work, worry about human lives, and they have to care, you know, worry about their national existence. Greater Oshkosh CEO Jason White says the end game for businesses 
shouldn't be opening. It should be ensuring customers feel safe when they open. He thinks businesses need to establish best practices for how to reopen during the pandemic before they jump right into reopening. The worst thing that could happen is that we reopen without a plan or without steps and safeguards. And what ends up happening is everybody's excited to go out, but then everybody in a couple of months from now has to go back in. And I think that we should take every measure possible to make sure that that doesn't happen. UW Oshkosh economist Chad Cotty says it's not clear that lifting the safer at home order will change the outlook for businesses because people may not go out enough in large enough numbers to make a difference. A CBS News poll found that 71% of Americans would not go to a bar or restaurant if stay-at-home restrictions were eliminated. Cotty says if 71% of people continue to stay in their homes after the economy is reopened, the 29% will not be enough to save the economy. But they are enough people to keep the virus spreading quite fast. He says reopening before having proper safeguards in place would undo any progress made by the initial safer at home order and could potentially force the lockdown to continue even longer. To build enough confidence in consumers to participate in the economy again, Cotty says the state needs to increase testing and contact tracing efforts and encourage everyone participating in economic activity to wear personal protective equipment to reduce asymptomatic transmission. We need to make sure that however many days we remain in safer at home, we use this time effectively so that we can get out of it and be out of it to the best of our ability. Because if we shelter at home for seven or eight or nine weeks total, and then we just go right back to business as usual with no plan, with no testing, with no wide understanding by the public, wear masks, get tested, you know, and limitations that are appropriate, it'll just come right back, and then we'll have to go back into social distancing, and it'll take longer to get to the final solution. And that's going to be even worse for everybody. I mean, for the businesses that can survive, if we have to do this again, then, then you know, I mean, how many more businesses do we lose? We're going to take a quick break, and when we return, we'll have more stories for you right here on Week in Review. One in three adults has prediabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has prediabetes, with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. Spring has sprung, and Wisconsin's never-ending construction season is building up steam once again. One of the newest projects in Winnebago County is the seven-month construction project on State Highway 76. Billy Piotrowski reports. Traffic is not as heavy on State Highway 76 right now due to stay-at-home orders, but according to the Wisconsin Department of Transportation, regular traffic patterns are predicted to increase on a three-mile stretch of the highway between I-41 and County Double J. Project manager Kurt Peters said that while the section of the road is closed through traffic until the project's completion in early November, the intersections of County G, Double G, and Double J, which are being turned into roundabouts, will be open at certain times throughout construction. We still have the crossroad at County G open, but GG is closed. 
around mm-hmm. the August time frame, early August, that intersection will be done. And then that is when we will close the County G intersection and then build the roundabout there. Besides the roundabouts, the mainline highway will be reconstructed with two 12-foot wide lanes with a paved shoulder of 5 feet and a total shoulder of 10 feet. Peters said that the route of the detour during construction will not change and it should not interfere with regular travel too much. The sign detour for the project, independent of what's going on, is 41 to 45 and then 45 up to Highway 10 and then back to 76. Local businesses will also still be open for business traffic during the construction, and alternate signage will direct customers where to go. For WRST News, I'm Billy Piotrowski. The transportation of goods and services is crucial to the success of any economy, but one of the most important aspects of the industry is quickly declining. The number of truck drivers especially over-the-road truck drivers, is in decline nationwide, and its effects are being felt locally. Patrick Kane reports on the shortage of truck drivers. A new report compiled by the American Trucking Association shows that the number of truck drivers nationwide has dropped each year since they started gathering data in 2005. Neil Kidsey is the president of the Wisconsin Motor Carriers Association. He says that some of the reasons for the shortage are that the population of drivers is aging and that there are less drivers who want to complete long-haul deliveries. We are a graying industry, unfortunately, with the average age being 46, whereas all other jobs nationwide are 42 years of age. And our new drivers that are entering into the field are 35 years old. So these are individuals that have already been through one or two possible careers prior to deciding on trucking. We also see a lot of the newer drivers want to drive shorter distances than over-the-road drivers normally have to do. They want to be home at night, want to be home on weekends. And so this has been a deterrent for newer drivers to come into the market. In the study, 88% of trucking companies report having enough applicants, but many are simply not qualified. Kedsey says that many older drivers left the industry partially because of new technology that was mandated by the federal government, mainly electronic logs. Kedsey says that it's a challenge to keep drivers in the industry because of additional regulations and high standards set by carriers. Another issue that we're dealing with is the quality of the drivers available. I think there are possibly enough bodies out there, but to get drivers that have good driving records, and so that creates a bit of a problem there too. Kedzie says that the legalization of marijuana for recreational use in many states around Wisconsin will be an issue moving forward as well, setting zero tolerance for illegal drugs in Wisconsin. In addition, the report says if the shortage numbers remain the same, the industry could be short 160,000 drivers by 2028. Kedzie says that there is great opportunity in the industry, with currently well over 100,000 positions related to the trucking industry in Wisconsin. A commercial driver's license, or CDL, however, is required to drive a semi-legally in-state and out-of-state.
these opportunities are available. You know, you can go into a trade, being a truck driver with good salary, you know, coming straight out of school. We average around forty-two to $44,000 a year. You don't have uh, the amount of debt piled up. Not everyone is destined to a baccalaureate four-year degree. Technical college many times is where you can get your CDLs throughout the Wisconsin technical college system is relatively inexpensive. And I think that these opportunities ought to be made known to individuals in high school and even start talking about these trades earlier than that. Kedzie also says education is crucial in the revival of truck driving. The federal government also wants to have more theory and problem solving taught as part of your CDL requirement because you're you're dealing with an industry that's responsible for nearly 74% of transporting of all goods and services here in the country. A lot of them are in the businesses that transport chemicals and other toxic materials, and there are huge responsibilities, huge liabilities. Reporting for WRST News, I'm Patrick Kane. The Menominee Nation Arena owner, Greg Pierce, filed for bankruptcy last year, and the COVID-19 pandemic has complicated his plans to get out of bankruptcy. UW Oshkosh journalism professor Miles McGuire has been covering this story since the beginning for the Oshkosh Examiner website. Miles, thanks for being on the show. If we're going to kind of talk about this and try and tell this story kind of in audio form, I think the best I guess the best place to go would be to the beginning. How did this project come about? I know Oshkosh was competing with a couple other cities to try and get an arena here. Well, um, it, it kind of came out of nowhere in that Greg Pierce, although he has his offices here, he lives in Nina, and so he wasn't really that well-known in the local business community. I mean, people knew who he was and all, but he wasn't really a, a mover and shaker at that point. But what he he does for a living is you know manage money for very wealthy people and that's a business that takes him around the country and so he had he was he's a big sports fanatic and he figured he had visited most of the stadiums and arenas everywhere mm-hmm. and knew which ones were good and which ones weren't good and so when word started bubbling up that the NBA was going to take the G League to a new level and require every NBA team to have a G League affiliate. He saw that as an opportunity mm-hmm. and started talking to people. And um, and because he had seen different arenas in different parts of the country, he figured that he could put a, a plan together here. And it bubbled up as kind of a surprise. So he, he draws up the idea and then he goes to the banks and the city for investment? Well, I think that he thought that initially he would, um, he might not need a bank, that he could raise money from a securities offering, from individual shareholders who would kick in money. And he knew enough about minor league operations that he felt that he could actually run a business that would turn a profit from the arena. And so he, 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 he put together a prospectus and and was planning to go out and raise, I think, about $20 million from investors. He, he ultimately did not raise that much, but that was the original plan. And then he also approached the city and said, what do you think? Here's this opportunity. Let's look at some different uh, locations and see which one makes the most sense. Mm-hmm. And the old Buckstaffs 
is going, and you know, we'll we'll support you. And one thing led to another. Oshkosh was in competition with these other cities, but the other cities couldn't. They either had existing facilities that needed a lot of upgrades, or they were going to have to through a big, long planning process to get their facilities up and running. And Oshkosh's government has this kind of uh, can-do attitude, you know, that they're trying to redevelop you know, a lot of the different parts of the city. And when came along and said, here's an idea, they said, okay, let's, let's see if we can make this work. And then how did he get tied up with private investors like... Eric Hoopman, and when does Valen Buildings kind of come into the picture? Pierce's his business is managing money for wealthy people, mm-hmm. and so he, you know, he travels in certain circles, and you know, it, it's his business to know people who have money to invest and to uh, make contact with them. So I don't know if he knew um, Eric Hoopman before this all got started. Mm-hmm. But um, once it got to be a point where he was trying to sell stock in his company, um, you know, he kind of made the rounds, and I'm sure he used the people, the contacts that he had to introduce him to other contacts, and um, and then you know you just kind of go through and and ask everybody who um, you know in the community who who uh, has money to invest, they'll invest, and so Hoopman um, was on that list. And then Balin's role in this was, I think was really unintentional, that they were hired to build the, the structure, and um, they assumed that they would be paid, but for some reasons that we can talk about in a minute, uh, Pierce ran into trouble raising the money that he thought he was going to raise. Mm-hmm. And so when the building was complete, um, he had paid some money to Bayland, but um, still owed them $10 million or so uh, in in principal and then another $2 million in, in interest that accrued. Um, and so he said, you know, basically, I don't have the money to pay you, but um, I'm gonna. I'm working on some things. Will you, you know, take back a mortgage on this? And so I'll still owe you this money, and I'll pay you, and I'll pay a pretty um, high interest rate. Um, and I think, you know, what, what was Baylin gonna do? Um, and so it said, okay, we'll do that. But then, as um, some of the other financial arrangements that uh, Pierce was pursuing, they they fell through. Some of them for reasons that were kind of outside of his control and by the, involving some environmental issues. Um, it, it just sort of kind of spiraled out of control from there. There were two sets of environmental problems. One was they knew that the ground underneath the, the land there was not stable. Mm-hmm. They knew that it was fill and sawdust and things like that. Um, it turns out that it was worse than expected, and they did incur some additional construction costs there, mm-hmm. but they sort of had that under control. I mean, it was it was an overrun. It was more than they expected to pay, but they kind of rolled with that. Then the second problem, though, that came along is what really was not anticipated, and it involves a class of chemicals that are highly carcinogenic and have been around for a while, 
discovered in places like there's a, an Air Force base or National Air, Air National Guard base um, outside of Madison and in different parts of the country. They were discovered and they were very carcinogenic. They're often used in flame retardants that you know are used at airports if there's a, a fire, an aircraft fire or something like that. And so environmentalists became very concerned about this and said, oh my gosh, these things are out there. They're really dangerous. We've got to figure it out how to find them and mitigate and all those kinds of things. And so what we're going to do is we're just going to put a moratorium. We're not going to give environmental certificates to anybody until we've addressed this issue. And that kind of came out of nowhere. And that was a... um, that was a real surprise. And, and what happened because of that was that Pierce's company, Fox Valley Pro Basketball, or the company he set up to run the arena, it was not able to get ownership of the land. So it, it built the facility under a long-term lease with the city. Mm-hmm. And the assumption was always that the city would transfer ownership to Fox Valley Pro Basketball. And then once it had that ownership, it could go to a lender and and raise funds that way. The assumption was that if it was only a long-term lease, that it wouldn't be able to, to raise funds. So there was a delay, and a, a lender who supposedly was willing to go forward dropped out because it looked like it, it wasn't clear how long it was going to take for these environmental issues to get cleared up. Um, and then ultimately they were because... As, as people looked into this issue more and more, they realized that as dangerous as this chemical was, it was its, its use was limited, and there was almost no chance that it was anywhere to be found in Oshkosh, for example. There are a lot of bad things, and Oshkosh is uh, underground, but this particular class of chemicals was not one of them. Mm-hmm. So, um, so finally, it gets cleared up, but by then the lender has dropped down, and and then. The thing that Balin did was say, hey, you're going to pay a pretty high interest rate because we're, we're really not a lender and this is really not our line of business. And then as, as the arena ran into some cash flow problems, it didn't pay a, a couple of installments to Balin. So then the loan went into default status. And under their agreement, the interest rate basically doubled. Mm-hmm. So it went up to something like 24% or something really outrageous and so the interest costs were just crushing once the interest costs kind of start to mount and pierce begins well it sounds like he kind of always had a little bit of trouble making payments but kind of once that interest really kind of starts to get him he really starts struggling to make payments and then in the summer of 2019 that's when balen sues uh, fox valley pro basketball pierce's company Arguing that arguing that they had defaulted on a thirteen point two million dollar mortgage, and then that's when Eric Hootman also sues, arguing mm-hmm. that Pierce owes him one point one million dollars. Right. What other details kind of come out around that time about Fox Valley Pro Basketball's financial situation? Because of that environmental problem, mm-hmm. it was not able to get this cash infusion of you know four or five million dollars that it expected to get. Mm-hmm. So it, it basically the cupboard is bare, and so um, it goes around. And, and one of the people that um, Pierce approaches is Hoopin and says, um, "I need this 
money, and it's you know it's basically it, it, it's it's basically a bridge loan. We're, we're I need it on a interim basis. I don't know how long it's going to take me to get this straightened out, but I'm going to get it straightened out and get permanent financing in. And um, that's a that's a risky kind of a loan. And so Hoopman charged again a very high rate of interest. And so Pierce has some some cash, but very expensive money, and he's, he's paying um, a high rate of interest uh, to, to Hoopman and to, to Bayland. Um, and so, as a result, he also stops paying. He, he, he missed some tax payments to the city. Um, he stopped paying his lawyer, who also got into court and sued him for non-payment. And so, it, it really, there, there, there was no way out except for bankruptcy. Bayland stepped in to sue and to say, you know, we'll take over the facility or, or we will hire a receiver who will work all of this out and we'll go forward from there. And um, as that was working its way through the, the state courts, uh, Pierce went to the federal bankruptcy court and, and filed the bankruptcy papers. And so that, once you go into bankruptcy court, everything sort of stops. And so that has allowed him to have this time from So in in trying to work things out, that's um, where Pierce develops a reorganization plan, and he's allowed to borrow two hundred thousand dollars from another company that he's the president of. So the reorganization has just come mm-hmm. recently. Okay. Um, but right after the bankruptcy filing occurs, and and this is typical. What happens in a bankruptcy filing is there's something called debtor in possession financing or DIP or dip financing. Mm-hmm. So basically if you go into bankruptcy, you need money. <laughs> you mm-hmm. would go into bankruptcy. And the argument of a, a company that's in bankruptcy is that we can fix this if we get a little breathing room. So what the bankruptcy courts let you do is go to a lender and get this financing while you're still in possession of the asset, but debtor in possession financing. And the advantage of debtor in possession financing is that it goes to the top of the list. So if in a bankruptcy everything falls apart, whoever has made the debtor in possession loan, that person gets paid off first. So it's a very secure kind of lending. And so some of the creditors were annoyed. Pierce, you know, they they blamed him. these are 
high-end and mm-hmm. paper products. And so they, once they were in bankruptcy, they went through a lot of contracts like that and tried to cut their expenses to the bone. And so his argument is that we, we're lowering expenses, we're finally going to get this infusion of cash, and we're also going to be more aggressive in who we book so that we'll have more concerts and shows and other kinds of things in the arena. And if we can, you know, keep it running and keep it full, keep the calendar full with lots of events, then we'll make enough money to pay off all of our creditors. So the plan the plan gets filed this year and then the pandemic hits and the coronavirus outbreak comes to Wisconsin. How has that affected Pierce's plan? Well, <laughs> as you can imagine, the arena is empty. Mm. So they've been trying to rebook some events, you know, some assumption that things will be back to normal, perhaps later this year, maybe this summer. And the, the creditors are not satisfied with this. And, and there's, there are two ways that you can run this argument. And so Pierce's lawyers are saying, you know, look, this came out of nowhere. It's a complete surprise. We were working very hard in good faith to come up with a plan to fix this so you can't penalize us for the fact that this pandemic came out of nowhere. On the other side, the creditors are saying, fine and dandy, but you know, this situation has been going on for a long time, and you don't have specific plans in place to show what you're going to do about this pandemic. And you can't because nobody knows what's going to happen. And that's kind of the, the argument that's going to go before the bankruptcy judge. And he's going to have to decide, okay, do I, do I cut Pierce some slack and say, okay, COVID wasn't your fault and go back to the drawing board? Or does he side with the creditors and say, you're right, this has been going on for too long. There have been these plans, but they've never been finalized. And maybe they would work, maybe they wouldn't, but... You know, you're out a lot of money, and so let's move forward and go to the next stage, whatever that might be. What's next in this case? What happens if, if the judge isn't lenient and he isn't approved? And then what kind of possible way forward is there for him to get improved where the whole business model is kind of bringing a lot of people together in a time when, even if everything gets reopened, people are going to be very hesitant to come together in large groups for entertainment? Well, you know, that's the question. What do you do? One thing to keep in mind is that there are two kinds of creditors. So there are what are called secured creditors, and basically that's Balin. That Balin has a direct interest in the arena and has a claim on the arena. And then you have a lot of unsecured creditors who are, um, a lot of them are investors, by and large, they're, they're individuals. Some of them had been former clients of Pierce. Some of them were kind of public-spirited local businessmen in, in Oshkosh who said, you know, this is a good thing, and it's probably not a really good investment, but, you know, here I'll, I'll kick in some cash to help this get off the ground. Mm-hmm. And so they are essentially, they have an ownership interest in the company, but they don't have the security of the building. So mm-hmm. if everything fell apart, Balin could still take ownership of the arena because it owns that mortgage. It holds that mortgage. Mm-hmm. The unsecured creditors would be left with nothing. 
And so one of the arguments that Pierce is trying to make is that the ultimate plan has to be fair, both to the secured creditors and the unsecured creditors. And that's an argument that I'm sure the judge will hear. And he may decide that, you know, that, that everybody has to take a haircut. That everybody has to take, you know, they're not going to get, Balin's not going to get its $13 million back, but it'll get 75% of it or whatever. And then the, the unsecured creditors, they, they're in the weakest position. Um, and so they could get nothing, um, but they could also get something because, uh, as I said, they're, um, you know, a lot of them are just private individuals who were, you know, doing this and, you know, they weren't expecting to get huge returns. They were just trying to do something for the, for the community. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's going to be up to the, 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 the judge to decide how to distribute the assets, which are clearly the, 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 the assets, the money available is not equal to the amount that's owed. If Balin gets the arena out of out of this case, kind of what happens? I mean, does the arena just well, kind of... Early on, the Fox organization said we that they would step in and run the arena. Okay. And so it's not clear. I mean, that's kind of the language they use. It's not clear what they were saying, whether they were simply they were willing to manage it or whether they were willing to take an ownership interest in it. I'm not sure. I think it's more that they would be willing to continue to operate it for the herd, and then also running a basketball team involves a lot of things in terms of player recruitment and personnel and all that, but a lot of it is basically uh, promotion and managing events and things mm-hmm. like that, so presumably they have some expertise, and if they could get in and get a good, you know, favorable contract, I'm sure that they would do it. Balin, I think, feels like it, it wants that, you know, it wants control over the asset. It, you know, where, where it's sitting right now is that it's out, you know, $13 million. And I think that, you know, nobody wants to be out $13 million. And if there's a, a, a physical asset that you can at least take over to offset some of that, that would be what you would want to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was kind of all I had for you. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about or let people know kind of about this story? Um, um, it, it gets to be really complicated in a hurry. <laughs> so it's hard to be interesting about this. You know, there's, there's a lot of, you know, if you go on social media and things like that, there's a lot of anger and a lot of people saying, you know, this was a bad idea and everybody should have known it was going to fail and, Greg Pierce has been accused of um, securities fraud in a couple of different contexts, but um, I think that it's it's more complicated than that. Um, and that the alternative, the having that the Buckstaff facility just sitting there and deteriorating, was pretty bad. Another thing to keep in mind is that you know real estate is a they're long lived assets, so. It's not a good situation now. It may not be a good situation in two or three or four years or five years, but I think there's a good chance that people will look back decades from now and say, um, and, and we'll have forgotten all of this turmoil and say, boy, that was really an important thing. It was really a cornerstone to redeveloping the 
south side of the city and mm-hmm. redeveloping the, the waterfront down there. But that's years in the future before we get there, and it's a, there's a lot of stuff that is going to have to be worked out and worked through before we get there. Thanks for taking some time out of your day to talk to me. I really appreciate it. We're going to take a quick break, and when we return, we're going to have a story about Ducks Unlimited's 2019 projects. Here's a question from Public Radio's longest-running quiz show. What's the common thread among challenging questions, witty panelists, smart listeners, and this radio station? Of course, since you are one of those smart listeners, you know the answer is says you. Where it's not important to know the answers, it's important to like the answers. I'm your host, Greg Porter, encouraging you to join the fun and folly, the wit and wisdom, the bluff and bluster, Sunday mornings at 8, here on 90.3 WRST-FM Oshkosh. Ducks Unlimited invested $2.7 million in 30 different Wisconsin project sites over the course of 2019. Blake Patrick reports. 2019 was a productive year for Ducks Unlimited, with work spanning 150 miles between the Mississippi River and Green Bay, Wisconsin. Many of the sites included the Mississippi River National Wildlife Refuge, the Barkhausen Waterfowl Complex, the Muskego Wildlife Area, the Waterloo Wildlife Area, and many more. This year also included the start of a three-year partnership between Ducks Unlimited and the Natural Resources Conservation Service. The Horicon Marsh State Area was given a substantial upgrade, including a new water management system and renovated dikes. Ducks Unlimited Public Affairs Coordinator Chris Sebastian says 2020 will be another productive year for the company. We have a handful of projects that we're still going to be working on. We're going to be working with the Eastern Wisconsin Great Lakes Focus Area. We're going to be restoring or enhancing over 3,000 acres of wetlands from Keweenaw County south to Washington. It's going to be a multi-year effort that really kicks off in 2020. A lot of our work here in the state is just that. It is multi-year. In 2019, we did 30 projects and over 11,000 acres of conservation, for example. A lot of those projects began the year before, finished up in 2019. Some started last year and some will continue into this year as well. While not everyone may be able to contribute to the conservation efforts in the same way Ducks Unlimited does, donating what you can is always helpful, and so is making your own duck boxes to ensure proper annual nests for local ducks. For WRST News, I'm Blake Patrick. This show is a production of 90.3 WRST-FM Oshkosh. Music for this episode was provided by FesleyanStudios.com. Thanks for listening, and tune in next week for another edition of Week in Review.